0: Welcome to The Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Lipovich, editor of RealSimple.com. When we're in need of relationship or marriage advice, we often turn to our friends, our therapists, or self-help books. But perhaps we're overlooking a far greater source of knowledge, the elderly. For the Cornell Marriage Advice Project, the largest in-depth interview study ever performed of people in very long marriages... Cornell University gerontologist Carl Pillimer surveyed more than 700 individuals who had been married for a total of 40,000 years. Pillimer published his findings in his book, 30 Lessons for Loving, Advice from the Wisest Americans on Love, Relationships, and Marriage, which is the kind of a textbook for how to love someone for life. Carl is here with me today to talk about what he learned from his hours of interviews with elderly Americans and their marital struggles and triumphs. Hi, Carl. Hi, and thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So let's begin by talking about your research. You spent a good portion of your career focusing on the problems of older people, things like disabilities, dementia, and then you transitioned into viewing the elderly as sources of wisdom. I wanted to know what prompted you to make this change.
1: Oh, that's a great question. And really, it's a confession I have to make uh, that I'd been a gerontologist for around 25 years. And suddenly it hit me, just as you pointed out, that I was focusing almost entirely on the problems of old people and older people as problems, as sick and disabled and lonely and isolated and demanded. And it really hit me that there's an alternative to that view, uh, that in fact, older people may be the best source of practical advice on some things. Now, maybe not on the latest app or the latest (laughs) um, reality TV star or how to reprogram the DVR, but when it comes to something like marriage, it's important for your listeners to consider the fact that it's really only been in about the last half century or so that people have gone to anyone other than the oldest person they knew for advice about something as important as marriage. Uh, so I felt if we could go and ask lots of older people about their practical advice for love, relationships, and marriage and distill that uh, and make it available to younger people that we would have a unique source of true, useful, practical advice. And I wasn't disappointed,
0: I should say. So how did you go about finding these couples and, and what was your criteria for, for the participants? One thing I didn't want to
1: do was just to have a few stories or a small number of people in these wonderful loving marriages. I wanted the whole spectrum, including people who had been divorced and then been in a happy marriage for thirty or forty years. and there were even some people in the study who had been serially divorced and wound up unhappy because it's often those people right who have the who have the best yeah. advice because they can tell you what they did wrong. Yes. so I use standard methods of social science, including A true national random sample survey. We also oversampled minority group members, and we had a subsample of people in same sex relationships that had gone on for 30, 40, or 50 years. So I used regular survey methods to get this largest uh, study of long married or people in long relationships ever conducted.
0: And what types of questions were you asking them, and what were you trying to get at with those questions? You know, I
1: have to tell you, I've been so privileged because these were some of the most profound conversations you can have with people. We started out asking all 700 of them. As you look back over your 70, 80, 90, 100 years, what are some of the kinds of advice you would like to give to a young person about how to find the right person to marry and how to stay married? Uh, And then we asked them lots of specifics. What's your advice for handling conflict? Your advice for communication? What's your advice in general about overcoming all the predictable and unpredictable stresses of marriage and really making the most of it? Um, You know, the idea was that there are some things that you have to have had the entire experience to be able to reflect on. And I think marriage is one of those. So it was often an interview that would go on for an hour or more, really focused on What would you advise younger people in this situation, in that situation? It was very concrete and specific. Not a kind of Yoda-like wisdom,
0: but really practical advice. So let's, let's talk about some of that practical advice. One of the questions that you asked was, as you mentioned, asking people, how do you go about finding the right partner? And what were some of their answers?
1: So they've got big picture items and small picture items. And I know we have a little bit of time, so I'll do sort of a Cliff's Notes version, and then if we, we come back, one of the key things older people say, as you, which might even surprise you in this generation, but but it sounds obvious to young people, but you must be in love. You have to have an intuitive, in-love feeling. So if you find yourself saying, you know, I'm 33 now and nothing better may come along, so I'm going to settle. America's elders aren't in favor of settling. They say you've got to have this, you know, kind of breathtaking away feeling of being loved. But their second point, as soon as that comes out of their mouths, they say, do not park your reason at the door. Do due diligence on someone. And they encourage you to think in an old-fashioned way. Use questions like, will this person male or female? be a good provider? Can they handle money well? Do other people like them? Uh, So we found, and I'll stop here, that one of the most important pieces of advice they have, for example, um, is if none of your friends, like your partner, really think twice about getting married because they could be
0: right. That's a bad sign.
1: (laughs) It really is a bad sign. Also, they argue things that you might not think of, like, of course, we think of dating violence, for example, as a reason not to go on in a relationship, Uh, but they argue avoid somebody who just gets angry easily at everything, who has a bad temper, because they say that then may evolve into a problem. So so in the book, we talk about warning signs that these very wise Americans uh, would like to alert young people to.
0: You were talking about how these elderly couples spoke about the the need for you to feel that fluttering and that real passion at least at the beginning. What was their advice about keeping in a healthy relationship keeping that kind of attraction alive? That's, you know, a huge struggle for long married couples. They point out that the number one threat in many marriages
1: is what I came to call in the book the middle age blur. And that's you get married and you're working on your careers and you have kids and you're in your early 30s, and time passes and you wake up at 50 and you can barely remember it, they argue that that period is so critical and you have to specifically work to make sure that you carve out time for yourself. One fascinating piece of advice they give for keeping the spark alive is that no matter how much you love your children, in some existential way, your marriage really has to come first because your child rearing isn't going to be effective if you two aren't getting along. Many of them talked about date nights. And even if you don't have any money, pawn the kids off with a grandparent or a friend uh, and go to a fast food restaurant, any way to get by yourselves. I'll add one thing. I did some focus groups in preparation for doing these studies. And I sat with a group of 30-something mothers of young children I was astonished how few of them had gone out on their own with their husbands. It was was so long for some people that they couldn't even remember it. Hmm. So this carving out time for yourselves is one of the most important ways, even if it has to be done by brute force, really for keeping the intimacy and spark alive for a lifetime.
0: I'm wondering how they, you know, there's some very predictable things that generally get marriages in trouble. Among them are money, not having a similar value system, not having a similar child-raising philosophy. And I wondered how they spoke about those pitfalls that, that do tend to be common ones.
1: You know, I have many younger friends and I have daughters who are in this sort of younger age range. And I've learned one thing about dating couples. They talk about everything. All kinds of things. But one thing they don't talk about is values. And what America's elders say, and this is really borne out by research, that there's one thing that you can deal with only before you're married. And that's ensuring that some fundamental values align. And they argue that if you're thinking of getting more seriously into a relationship, having a conversation about, do our values align in terms of money, sex, child rearing. And they say, sure, it's a little awkward to talk about kids, but don't just ask, do you want to have any? Ask your partner, your prospective partner, so what do you think about how kids really should be raised? The number one thing that makes people incompatible isn't interests or other issues. It's not sharing these core values. And the only way that you can deal with it is before you commit. Even if it feels awkward, they say, have that conversation and you're likely to regret it.
0: And how did they respond to questions about communication? I think that even, and maybe even especially in long-term relationships, couples get into a kind of shorthand. They become, you know, as you were saying, when you don't spend a lot of time alone together, it can become more and more difficult to communicate. How did they define good communication?
1: I want to Give you and your listeners a warning, and that's this. You may need a cliche alert, but I'm going to try to argue why it's not a cliche. Okay, go. So, yes, the elders emphasize good communication above all else. Communication was one of the most important lessons, but when it comes to dealing with other problems, they see good communication as the key. The reason why I say it's not a cliche is many of these folks who are 80 and 90 years old grew up as bad communicators, and especially the men. I call them in the book, the tough old guys, and you may see them at your local, you know, a farm stand or your mechanic. These are guys who never communicated about themselves. And then they fought in World War II or in Korea and were either yelled at or being yelled at for four years. And Mm -hmm. then they came home and were expected to, to communicate. Every single one of those men in long relationships learned how to communicate when they had to. They learned how to talk about important feelings, how to express themselves if need be. So one argument the elders make, don't call yourself the strong, silent type and say you can't do it. They did it and you can. So it is absolutely critical. It's not like you have to talk all the time or that you have to drive your partner crazy. Guilty as charged personally, by the way. <laughs> but you must be able to communicate on some core issues. And they do use what might sound like a stereotypical test. They really believe after 10, 15, 20 years, you ought to be able to have a two-hour dinner with your husband or wife and be interesting and have an interesting question or you should, or, and, and, um, and have an interesting conversation or you should view that as a warning sign.
0: Speaking of warning signs, what were some other things that they outlined as being things that couples should really, really be, be worried about if they are happening in a relationship?
1: There were major issues that may seem fairly obvious to people. But what was interesting was how adamant they were. Even in this generation, no one was tolerant of violence of any kind. And there were a number of people who had lived through it, either for, especially in a first marriage. And their argument is, if somebody hits somebody else, head for the door. And they were rather radical about that. I will add as an aside, they were not so radical about infidelity. Many of them felt that a single episode of infidelity could be dealt with if there was remorse, if there was a healing. Violence was a deal breaker. But there are other more subtle things one was what, uh, is when your partner begins to treat you. And this is a strong word, but I think it's an important one with contempt. Oh, um, so when arguments yeah. move into hurtful sarcasm, name calling,
0: harmful teasing,
1: dismissive. They say mm-hmm. really treat that as a major warning sign.
0: In terms of, I'm just curious, both for you as the person doing the interviews and for these elderly people as as your subjects, how did you approach the topic of sex and were they willing and able to talk openly about their sex lives?
1: I believe I can make a statement that I be, uh, that I think is true. Namely, over the last five years, I've talked to more really old people about sex <laughs> than anybody else I think I've known. Mm-hmm. And one thing that's remarkable is how open they're willing to be about it. So they really are willing to talk about it. And, and, I'm, and I want to tell young people and middle-aged people, the news is in general really, really good. Old people's problems with sex is largely not having a partner. Huh. People who have a partner are generally sexually active and even though some of the heart-throbbing passion dissipates they really find intimacy with a long-term partner extremely rewarding and they describe it in terms like beautiful and sublime and, and sort of hard to describe that's so sweet so that even though oh you know um, if I can be detailed yes even if the actual act of intercourse perhaps becomes a little less important or a little less, you know, Uh dynamite-like. This whole range of physical intimacy really develops, and people were very specific about it. So that, I think, is is very, very good news. Uh, You know, they argue that you do have to work at it and keep at it, but it becomes, for a lot of people, more fun. Um, As one 80-year-old told me, This is no longer about procreation, it's recreation. (laughs) Uh, So some of the pressure is taken off, and I was astounded at for people who are in partnerships, really how satisfied they were, and and they laughed at young people's views about the sexless older years or will this continue. They say really for young people, don't make that a worry as you enter into a long-term relationship because it's usually quite good.
0: (laughs) And what did they, in terms of advice, since you were asking for advice, what was their advice to younger people about sex and its importance in a healthy relationship? All right.
1: I have to give a disclaimer. So I did this study, and I say things that they told me that are their opinions. And so that was my job. So I'm, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, completely appropriate or not, but I would say that one thing that both men and women did say very concretely, try to stay as attractive as you can be. Hmm. They were very against anti-aging drugs and therapies and plastic surgery, but in terms of keeping yourself in shape, fit, really to take care of yourself, people told me over and over. And women were harsh about other women and men were harsh about other men. Uh, um, and so that was one piece of advice, sort to pay attention to the kinds of things that made you attractive when dating
0: right? is to
1: really think of those things. But I also think it is communication and responsiveness and willingness to change, you know, as your capabilities change and your desire changes to be talking about that a lot of the time. It doesn't just happen naturally all the time in your 60s, 70s and beyond. And sometimes you really need to discuss things that you would just, spontaneously tumble into bed when you're in your 20s, it may take more communication
0: than you were used
1: to when you were younger.
0: Just back to that point about them feeling like it was important to keep up appearances and stay in shape. Do you think that was more about doing it for themselves and their own sense of self or for their partners? Were they trying to maintain themselves so that they would still be attractive or was it that it just made them feel better about themselves and therefore more sexual?
1: You know, I think it's both of those. I will say that for many of them, there was this desire to have their partner still consider them to be attractive. Mm -hmm. One issue that came up around sex and sexuality but that also permeated these long-term relationships was moving towards an interest in making your partner happy and seeing uh, the benefits of an orientation towards your partner's enjoyment Hmm. as then leading back to your own enjoyment. So if these long married couples, often both people had the orientation of what can I do today to make my partner's life a little easier or more enjoyable? In terms of sexuality, what would he and he or she enjoy get, given his or her current state? So there's a little bit of an other-centeredness, I think, that develops that really helps intimacy in these long-term relationships.
0: I know this is a really tough question, but if you had to narrow it down um, and distill kind of all of this wisdom that you extracted from these 700 people. What would you say were the common themes? What would you say were the most valuable pieces of advice from the old people that you spoke to?
1: So Let me give you one that's on the tiniest level, but happens to be one of my favorites, and then a big one. On the tiniest level, there's one thing that's worked incredibly in my own relationship, and that is never argue when you're hungry. they argue over and over many people said that if you're having these difficult fights you might not need a therapist as much as you need a pastrami sandwich (laughs) or a piece of pie Um, and if i could digress i will say that that my wife and i do a lot of traveling and at seven at night we always start to have an argument about who got us to the museum after it closed or who chose the crappy hotel right (laughs) And, and one of us now says are we hungry and it's remarkable, but on a bigger picture, <laughs> and I'm not quite sure the age range of your listeners. But assuming you know there are some, uh, there are probably a number who are looking for love or um, looking for marriage, I would say that one of the strongest lessons is that a long and happy marriage is really possible. Young people, I would say, can learn the following lesson from this book: You're way too pessimistic about marriage. Your f- people are filled with these typically inaccurate statistics about how often marriages fail. You know, they see themselves as in this and, and really could it last? The answer is long marriages can happen. They do happen to a lot of people. And for a lot of people, it's really great. It's like a consummation of human experience to be with somebody for 50, 60, or 70 years. So I think a major lesson is Avoid the pessimism that this can't happen. It really does happen. It happens for a lot of people. And you can also attain it yourself. And I think of that, you know, as somebody who's been married for 38 years myself and hopes to live another 30 years, um, I like that lesson. So I would say that's a key one. You know, a key lesson is to treat marriage as a lifelong commitment. Even though you know that may not be the case, Mm -hmm. Uh, but to really view it as if you're in it for life and and that, in a sense, you can't get out of it easily. Uh, Because I'll tell you one thing. If you're walking, say, in Central Park and you see one of those 90-year-old couples holding hands and looking lovingly at one another and you go, ah, Mm -hmm. every single one of those couples had horrible periods in their marriage. (laughs) There were years of barrenness. Somebody had an alcohol problem. A child died and you didn't communicate for three years. All of them had miserable periods. Sticking through it turned out to be the best thing they ever did. So the, the, you know, the final lesson, their view is people give up way too easily. And uh, the possible benefits of working through these really turbulent periods, not giving up and treating this as something that you're going to do for life, even if it doesn't work out that way, is perhaps the strongest and best advice they can give.
0: Carl, I find myself like choking up. That is such a wonderful um, way to distill it all and and really, really profound. Thank you. Well, you're you welcome. Know, can I say one last thing? Yes.
1: <laughs> so well, we have a YouTube channel. So oh, we have great. lots of interviews with older people. And a surprising number of the folks who we interviewed for this had found love again after a divorce or widowhood quite late in life. And over and over, they told me, don't give up on love. You know, it's just too good when it occurs. (laughs) So again, it's this notion that, you know, keep trying and don't give up. Because for people who really felt that their love life was over, it rekindled in very surprising and interesting ways. So, yep. So I'd say the fine, you know, really look more positively on this whole institution of marriage because it really can work for a lot of people.
0: I feel more positive just talking to you, really. Well, there we go. <laughs> Carl Pilmer, thank you so much for being on The Labor of Love today.
1: All righty, well, thanks a lot. It's been great being with you.
0: Thanks so much for joining me today on The Labor of Love. Email me your questions or comments and suggestions for topics and guests at Podcast at gmail.com. I'd like to thank our producer, Kristen Meinzer, and our editor, Tim Einenkel. If you enjoyed the episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find other podcasts from Real Simple. You can subscribe to The Labor of Love at iTunes.com slash panoply or at panoply.fm. I'm Lori Leibovitch, and I'll see you next time on The Labor of Love.